0: Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 18 through the end of the chapter. I'd like to read this for us as we begin and then we'll be working our way through the text and the message. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised." Amen, And because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Amen. There are some passages of Scripture that are difficult to preach on, not because they are hard to understand, but because of what they say. And this is one of those passages. This is a passage that talks about man's sin. And more than that, it talks about God's wrath against sin. That's not an easy thing to talk about. In fact, it's a message that you won't hear in a lot of churches today. But you will hear it here, because it's in the Bible we're going to be talking about this this morning. And I want to emphasize why it's important for us to understand our sin. And to understand the way God looks at our sin and God's punishment for sin. And the answer to that is because we will not see our need for a Savior until we see our sin and guilt before a holy God. Let me say that again. That is very important that we will not see our need for a Savior until we see our sin and guilt before a holy God. Otherwise, people just simply think, you know, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person, or I can kind of go on my way and ignore this, not think too much about it. We need to see sin as God sees it. In fact, if you were to put a banner over the first three chapters of Romans, it would be this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God kind of the heading for this opening part of the book of Romans. And like a prosecuting attorney in a courtroom, Paul lays out the evidence. And that's what he's doing. You can imagine that we are in the dock. We are sitting there and these charges are being brought against us. They're being brought against all mankind. In the passage we'll look at this morning, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, he tells us that the Gentiles have sinned. And they are guilty. In chapter 2, verses 1 through chapter 3, verse 8, he will talk about the Jews, the religious man. They have sinned, and they are guilty. And finally, in chapter 3, in verses 9 to 20, he will talk about how all mankind has sinned. We are guilty. And the punishment for our sin is death. That's a pretty sobering thing to face, isn't it? If you imagine that you were sitting before a holy God and the evidence was brought before Him to convict you of the crimes that you and I have committed and the verdict is pronounced of death, that's what the Bible says we deserve. And it is only by His grace that we can be saved. let's take a look at the evidence here as we walk through this text as Paul shares it. Number one he tells us that man is guilty of suppressing the truth about God and we see that in verses 18 through 20. He tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of man. What he is saying here is kind of interesting because sometimes we think of the wrath of God as something that's going to show up at the end in that final day of God's judgment. But Paul is saying, no, that the wrath of God is operating in this world even now. In the same way that he said in verse 17 that the righteousness of God is also revealed in this world. God's holiness is revealed. It's operative in our world. God's justice is also being revealed. His judgments show up in this world as well. And both of those are visible for us to see. So what is the wrath of God? How do you define that? What does the Bible mean by that? Well, the wrath of God is God's settled opposition to all that is unholy. Because God is holy, He hates sin. Sin is rebellion against God. is breaking His law and His standards of righteousness, of what is good and right and just and fair. And we violated that. And because God is just, He cannot let sin go unpunished. A penalty has to be paid. That's why the book of Romans will say that the wages of sin is death. Someone had to pay that penalty of death for our sins. And God's wrath is revealed in ways that we may not think of as wrath. We think of stories in the Old Testament of fire and brimstone, like what God did at Sodom and Gomorrah as a picture of the wrath of God. Or we think of the great flood that covered the earth in the days of Noah and we think of that as the wrath of God and yet God has promised he will not bring judgment on the earth in that same way again. What Paul is telling us here is that God's wrath is most often revealed in our world by simply letting people experience the consequences of their sin. When people rebel against God and choose to go their own way, or when people reject God and want to live their life apart from Him, God simply lifts His hand. In fact, three times in this passage in Romans, it will say that God gave them over in verse 24 and verse 26 and in verse 28. God gave them over. He allowed them to continue down this path to reap the fruit of their sin and their rebellion against God. And God's wrath is revealed against two things in particular in our world. It is revealed against our godlessness, which is idolatry, and it is revealed against our wickedness, which is immorality. And what you should note about that is that what Paul is saying is that by those two things we have broken both tablets of the law. If you think of the Ten Commandments, the first commandments deal with our relationship with God and we shall have no other gods before Him. We're not to worship God falsely or in vain. We're not to use His name in vain. And so he is saying that man by his idolatry has broken the first table of the law. And then our wickedness has to do with a sense of justice and immorality and immoral behavior. And by our wickedness, we have broken the commandments that say we shall not steal or we shall not commit adultery or kill or bear false witness or covet. We've broken the second tablet of the law. And so even those who have not seen the Ten Commandments, even those who do not believe in them that they are for today, God still holds us accountable to that standard. And he says that we have sinned against him. And that's what Paul's going to lay out. Paul continues to say that there are certain things that all men know about God. And theologians call this general revelation or natural revelation. And through general revelation, uh, he tells us that there are certain things that we can know about God that, number one, general revelation is universal. It is there for all to see. And so when he talks about uh, these things, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, there are certain things that everybody, no matter where they live, can know about God. That truth is universal. It is constant. It has been there since the creation of the world. It is plain. It is clear or evident. There are certain things that we can deduce, if you will, from the uh, environment around us and the world in which we live. But general revelation is also limited. It doesn't tell us everything about God. It says that through what we see in the world around us, we can learn certain things about God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature, that there is a God who made this world, who is the creator. But it doesn't tell us the way of salvation. It doesn't tell us how we can know this God. That's where special revelation comes in. That's why Jesus Christ came. That's why the scriptures were given to show us the way to God more clearly. But what he does say about general revelation is that it is enough to make us accountable, but it is not enough to save us. It is enough to make us accountable so that men are without excuse. And if men truly do respond to the light that we have, God will bring the good news of salvation to them. If people recognize what and see through the world around them that there must be a God who made this world, and they desire to come and know this one God, God will bring that news to him, and he can do that in many different ways. We see an evidence of general revelation too in the Old Testament in Psalm 19. When the Scripture says that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands, and day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge, and there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. It is evident everywhere. All we need to do is open our eyes to see it. You know, yesterday, uh, Gail and I were driving up to Duluth, and uh, Ben had a soccer game up there, and it was just a wonderful day to take a drive because of the fall colors. It's absolutely glorious to see all of those vibrant colors as the season is changing before us. And as we were driving along, I thought about, you know, what's remarkable about all those colors is that they are there all through the summer. Those colors are there. We just can't see it. Because of the chlorophyll and the way that it works in the trees, you know, those trees and leaves all look green. But that color is all there. And it's only when it's revealed that we can see it. And I think about that with heaven, for example, or God's glory. It's real. It is there all the time. We just can't see it. It's only when our eyes are opened and it is revealed to us that we will see the glory of God and understand who He is and that He has made this world around us and He has made us. And Paul is arguing that what happens with men is that men have this intuitive understanding that there is a God who has made us. We are creatures, and He is the Creator. But men suppress that truth about God. They stuff it down. When it says that they suppress that truth, that word in Greek is a very strong word. It is the same word that describes a helmsman who is holding the rudder in a storm. And you can imagine the winds and the waves beating against the ship. And he is determined to hold his course in that storm. That's what he says men do when they suppress the truth about God. They are stubborn in their refusal to acknowledge that there is a God. And they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. It's what the communists tried to do in the former Soviet Union for 70 years, telling their people, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. And yet how did the Berlin Wall fall? It fell largely because of prayer meetings that were going on in places like Germany and Romania as people gathered in the churches to pray, believing there is a God. It's what atheists and some evolutionists do today. I know that there are some people that are theistic evolutionists, but there are also those that would say again to us in our country that there is no God. We're simply here as a basis of product uh, uh, you know, of time and chance, and isn't it amazing what time and chance can do? And they want to say there is no God. Yet 90% of Americans still believe there is a God. As a result of suppressing the truth, the second thing that man is guilty of is man is guilty of idolatry. And we see that in verses 21 to 25. Idolatry is when we allow any person or thing to take the place of God in our life. Some people worship money. Some people worship power. Some people worship gods of sex or violence, whatever it may be. They create a God that they want to worship and pursue. And what Paul says here is that in this progression man exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. And man exchanged the truth of God for a lie. It's interesting that in the Greek language in which this is written it actually reads the exchange the truth of God for the lie. The lie it's definite. It's the lie that Satan introduced to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that you don't need God. You can be God. God just doesn't want you to eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil because he knows that when you do that, your eyes are going to be open and you are going to be like God. You don't need him. God doesn't really love you. You can be your own God. And so they exchange this truth about God for this lie. And they begin to worship and serve created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Paul adds that note there about the Creator because even though men in this world may choose to reject God, God is still worshipped and praised in heaven. God is God. And nothing that man thinks about Him is going to change that. God is who He is. And one day we will all stand before Him. You know, there are certain people, too, who look at the Bible today. And I say this for students because, you know, you may go uh, to college and you may have a comparative religion class or you may have a professor who one day is going to tell you, you know, that some of these beliefs in the Bible and the Old Testament are pretty pagan beliefs and that God has really evolved. And we don't want to believe in a God of wrath anymore because God's a God of love and these things are inconsistent and incompatible. And they'll say things like that as though our idea from a human standpoint about God has evolved and gotten better. But that's not what the Bible says. Paul writes about the wrath of God here. Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone. And yet no one ever did more to keep us from going there than Jesus. He gave his life for us. And he talked about the reality of sin and punishment and the consequences to come. And God pleads with us to come to him to receive his mercy and grace. Paul says here that professing to be wise, they became fools instead. Thinking they were smart and intelligent and had this all figured out, instead they became very, very foolish. You know, I was thinking about this too, and recently I talked to a doctor who I know who had been to Italy. And he was telling about some sculptures that they had seen that Michelangelo did, and he was just fascinated by those sculptures because, I mean, they, they are brilliant. And the way that they reveal the human anatomy and the bones and the tendons and even the blood vessels, you know, and as a doctor he could identify those things, and it was just amazing the detail that was there in those sculptures. Now, no one would ever come up to those sculptures and say, you know, isn't it amazing what a little wind and water and erosion can do? I mean, I mean, isn't it just amazing that that could just kind of jump out of a rock and you could have this beautiful kind of detailed sculpture of a person? Nobody would ever say that. If you said that, they'd think you were a fool. And yet people can look at the human body that is far more intimately made. That stone is just a reflection of what the human anatomy is like and how our body is made. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, and yet people will somehow come to the conclusion that there isn't a God and that we just happened in all of this complexity by chance? I don't get it. Professing to be wise, they became fools instead. The evidence for design is compelling. I, I just put some books here on this slide. You can go put them all up that are great books that deal with all of these kind of things. I mean, Hugh Ross, an astrophysicist, talks about the complexity of the world around us. Uh, you'll see J.P. Moreland, The Creation Hypothesis, writes as a Christian apologetic uh, Uh, Darwin on Trial, Philip Johnson talks about looking at the evidence for intelligent design and Michael Behe on Darwin's black box and things that they don't want you to know about that. All of those books deal with the uh, evidence for intelligent design and it's astounding. I mean, uh, I love reading some of Hugh Ross's things because he'll point out the details, you know, the... Like the earth is just the exact distance from the sun that it needs to be in order for life to be sustained. If we were any closer, we'd burn up. If we were any farther away, we'd be like Mars and there'd be no water or possibility of life on our planet. If the earth's axis was just any different in terms of the tilt, we wouldn't have the seasons we do. If the rotation was any faster or slower, the storms would be greater or more severe. I mean, you can go through all of these details about the atmosphere, the distance the moon is from the earth. All of those things that are made and that are finely tuned and perfect in order for life to exist, did that all come about just by chance? I don't think so. You know the odds of all that happening by chance? Well, I'd say you'd have a better shot if you're a student if you took a Scrabble board and you took all those letters in that game and you put them in a bag and you shook it up and you threw them out and you had your next term paper written for you. You know, that that's about what we're asked to believe on this. It just it doesn't make sense. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they turn to worship man or images of man rather than the God who is forever blessed. And thirdly, man is guilty of immorality in all of its forms. We see that in verses 26 through the end of the chapter. Most of the commentators that I looked at believe that in verses 26 to 27, when Paul talks about homosexual acts here, and this is a a sensitive subject, In our world today, most of the commentators believe that when Paul talks about homosexual acts here, it is not because it is the worst of sins, but it is because it is unnatural. And he emphasizes that here. You know that God gave them over to shameful lusts. Women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way men abandoned natural relations with women for unnatural ones. And Paul is emphasizing that because it's visible. It was a big part of the Roman world. Uh, William Barclay said that uh, 14 out of 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals, participated in that. It was a part of their pagan lifestyle, if you will. But it is unnatural in that God made us male and female to have children for the propagation of the human race. And that kind of lifestyle will not produce children. And today in our world, there are people who want to say that homosexuality is perfectly natural, that it's genetic, or that it is natural, that it should be followed or pursued, but that's not what the Bible says. And yet we need to say that with compassion, too. Because there are people who struggle with temptation in this area, just like people are tempted to have heterosexual sex outside of the bonds of marriage. The temptation itself isn't sin. It is acting on that temptation that is sin. And the more we indulge in sin, the more God simply gives us over to reap the fruit of that. I also know that this is a sensitive subject in our world because there are those who would like to outlaw even reading this, even saying it, and call it hate speech. In countries today like Sweden and Canada, The potential exists that simply reading the book of Romans could get you in trouble with the law. It's because they wanted to put it under hate speech, as though just talking about these things could incite someone to act against them, and therefore it's a violation of the law. Now, our desire at all as Christians is never to incite hatred against anyone. You know, Our desire is to do what God does to hate the sin, love the sinner and to recognize that sin is in all of us and we all have different issues that we struggle with. Sin has consequences. You heard me say that when I spoke about marriage and the Song of Songs and I talked about sex outside of the bounds of marriage today and the increase of sexually transmitted diseases in our world or the AIDS crisis that is so closely tied to both Uh, sexual habits as well as drug habits and things like that. That's most often how it's transmitted. It is not the only way it's transmitted. And so you can't make a blanket statement on those things and say that this is always the result of sin. But it's not just sexual sin that Paul is talking about here. It is all sin that has consequences. And that's why he gives this longer list of things. that people have given themselves, or God gave them over to a depraved mind and people have become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil and greed and depravity. You know, just to give you a few examples here, I mean, wickedness is defined here as injustice. Evil are those things that are sinister and vile. Greed is this desire for more and more. And, I mean, just look at the trouble that's gotten us into in terms of Wall Street or a case like the Petters here at home in Minnesota. You know, our greed just causes us to do things that are unwise or foolish as we try to gain more and more. Depravity. We've lost our moral compass, our sense of right and wrong. People have become God-haters rather than lovers of God. People are inventors of evil. They're pushing the boundaries of sex and violence in terms of what is shown on movies and television or in theater. And they invent ways of doing evil. I'm just sometimes amazed at all the scams that are out there trying to take people's money. I mean, people must spend their whole time, you know, a full time job almost, just trying to find a way that they can scam somebody else. And being creative in that he even includes disobedience to parents, which leads to a disrespect for all authority in our world. Doesn't that describe our world? I mean, can anyone say that that's not true? that those things are not in our world. And then he sums it up with a final indictment in verse 32, that although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. They call evil good, and they call good evil. And they begin to look at Christians as the really bad ones who have made this world a bad place, and if somehow we could just get rid of these religious beliefs, we'd all be a lot better. But it is folly. The evidence is there that we are lost, we are desperately sick, we are guilty. And God has every right to hold us accountable for our sin. We need a Savior. And thankfully God has provided one for us in jesus christ the righteous one god has called us to live differently as his children and by his grace we can do that we can live differently when christ comes into our life and we are changed by the power of the holy spirit and we put off the old man and we put on the new and we choose to clothe ourselves with the lord jesus christ kent hughes is a pastor in a church down in Wheaton and I love how he captured this in his positive rendering of Romans 1 to 32 and I want to end with this today as a note of aspiration I want you to listen to how he stated this he said therefore God gave them over in their hearts to self-control and purity that their bodies might be honored among them for they kept and cherished the truth of God and worshiped and served the Creator, who is blessed forever, rather than the creature. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them over to pure and wholesome lives, lived with carefree ease, even in the most intimate relations, so that all received in their own persons the due reward of their fidelity. And just as they saw fit to acknowledge God in all things, God gave them over to a sound mind, to do those things which are proper being filled with all righteousness, goodness, generosity, kindness, full of selflessness, life, healing, openness, kindliness. They are gentle in speech, always building others up, lovers of God, respectful, humble, self-effacing, inventors of good, obedient to parents, understanding, trustworthy, loving, merciful. And as they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are possessors of life, they do the same. And they give hearty approval to those who do likewise. Isn't that what we all desire? And by God's grace, that is the way that we can live. Lord, may we make it our aim to please and honor you. Let's pray. Father, as we end today and we come before you, I just want to give everybody an opportunity. if. As we've been talking about these things, God has brought to your mind something in your life that you need to confess and admit to God. Please do that now. And God, I thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but you are a gracious and forgiving God who is a pardoning God like you that forgives our sins and has sent your only Son to be our Savior. It is only by His grace that we can stand. And Father, thank you that we can be forgiven and cleansed and clothed with your righteousness. Remind us of that as we sing this last song.